0: Lisa Makuha Elizalde is a legend. After a two-year scholarship to study ballet in Russia that began in 1982, she became the first foreigner to be invited to join the illustrious Kirov Ballet. Having made a name for herself on the world stage, Lisa came home to the Philippines and made it her mission to bring ballet to the Filipino people. With numerous local and international accolades under her belt and 28 years of dancing all over the globe, Her story is truly one for the history books. But that story, of course, has its chapters. Ups and downs. Highs and lows. Lisa shares it all with us, together with the lessons and realizations that she has picked up here and there throughout a career and life well-lived. My name is Leah Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Lisa Macuha Elizalde. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to What Glass Ceiling. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming on. You're such an icon and trailblazer, not just here in the Philippines, but really all over the world. You've had such an incredible storied career. It's really jaw-dropping stuff when you hear about it. Can you tell us a little about how it all started?
1: I guess it all started when I um, was introduced to ballet class. I was in second grade in St. Teresa's College, Quezon City. And my mom uh, used to dance ballet and she had such a great time dancing ballet that when she had me, I'm the first girl and second child, she decided to enroll me in ballet class to see if I would enjoy it as much as she did. And I did. I enjoyed it. I had natural flexibility and I just had a lot of energy as a child. Although I was a shy child, I just opened up in ballet class. And so I decided to stick with it. Um, because it made me into, you know, a dancer when, when we'd have PE class, I would, you know, naturally be the, the dancer being picked, you know, it's like, pick me, pick me. Um, and you know, for our cheering in school, I would be a dancer also. And I guess it just set me apart. I, you know, I had the posture, I had the again the flexibility and the the energy and the style. And I kept at it until I reached high school. When I was fourteen years old, I met Yoko Morishita, the Japanese prima ballerina, and. When I met her backstage, I saw her, she was Asian, she was petite, she was um, all the things that you wouldn't think a swan queen would be, uh, again, because she, she basically uh, was not your stereotype ball- classical ballerina. Again, she was petite, she was Asian, and yet she was dancing the role of uh, a swan queen. Uh, Odette Odile in Swan Lake. And so when I met her, I knew that I wanted to be just like her a classical ballerina, even though I was Asian, even though I was short, even though I was dark haired and chinky eyed. And yeah, so um, she was basically for me proof that it was possible to become a classical ballerina even though you were Asian. And I needed the training in order to accomplish that. I knew I needed to be very, very good at dancing ballet. And my father at that time worked with a trade delegation from Moscow. So the the opportunity came up to travel to, at that time, it was called Leningrad in Russia, to enroll in the Leningrad Choreographic School, named after Agrippina Vaganora. And that was the best, for me, the best ballet school in the world. Um, so, yeah, I decided to take that risk and uh, go on a two-year scholarship. So I gave myself two years. That was my deadline uh, after I graduated from high school in St. Teresa's College. Oh, you know, my my parents, my my grandparents, of course, wanted me to go on, uh, get a college degree, and uh, you know, get a more like traditional career path for for a woman. Um, but I wanted to become a ballerina, so that's what I did. I gave myself a two year deadline to just devote myself to uh, dancing and dance training and see where that would lead me. And it led me to graduating from the Russian Ballet Academy. At the top of my class, I was invited to uh, become a member of the Kirov Ballet, the only non-Russian there. And um, the only Asian, the first Asian to be given the role of um Masha in the school production, in the Russian school production of the Nutcracker. So I guess you could say that I broke a lot of barriers being in Russia at the age of, you know, 18, 19, 20. But what those years in Russia gave me was the uh, foundation to build a solid uh, career as a classical ballerina once I decided to be based in the Philippines.
0: And I'm sure such a career spanning as long as yours must have been sort of a roller coaster ride of sorts. You've mentioned some of the milestones that that you've had in Russia and some barriers that you've broken. But I'm sure that just as much as there were significant ups, there must have been downs as well that you've gone through throughout the years. How how hard was it? What were the difficulties that you faced? Well, first of all,
1: I didn't really have the... Um, natural uh, lines and body of a ballerina. As I said before, I was petite. Um, I was a little bit bow-legged. I didn't have the high-arched, beautiful feet of a ballerina. I was chinky-eyed. So, you know, when you're dancing Giselle and you come out of the the cottage and you're supposed to be portraying a French maiden, it kind of you you have to remember this was the 1980s 1990s. So the again the the Asian ballerina hasn't they we, we still didn't have that many um, Asian ballerinas yet. Uh, so it was it was difficult because first and foremost I had to adjust my style of training and dancing. I was primarily uh, trained in the Royal Academy of Dancing English syllabus of the UK while I was here in the Philippines. And so when I had to retrain myself into the Russian method of, you know, the Russian Vaganova method, I had two years in the school to do this. Actually, I I really often answer the question, what was the hardest part of your life? I think the, my first year in Russia still continues to be the hardest year of my life. Because you have to remember that I was 18 years old. I was raised in an upper middle class family in the Philippines. I did not speak a word of Russian. I was not used to being on my own so far away from home. I was definitely not used to the weather where where temperatures would go down to minus 25 degrees Celsius. Uh, I was not used to uh, the communist lifestyle. Again, this was when Russia was still very closed. There were no cell phones, there was no email, there was no video calls. Uh, I had uh, sometimes to go to the post office by a minute. A minute of a phone call to my my home, to my parents, would cost four rubles a minute. And my allowance was 40 rubles a month. And I had to feed myself. I had to, you know, get by with public transportation um, and all of that with, you know, 40 rubles a month. So I think that that was really the hardest year of my life, adjusting not just to a new lifestyle, uh, being very far away from home, being homesick, but adjusting to a new kind of ballet training. Where I had to relearn a lot of, I mean, even terms, you know, I called this position in classical ballet fifth position all my life. And in Russia, it was called third position, oh. you know. So again, it, I, that, that was a period of adjustment that ultimately I ended up uh, conquering that part of, um, uh, of uh, the uh, change in my life as I also got injured in the process. And I think that was my my first major injury in, in Russia was my ankle. And it prevented me from performing in an award ceremony in Moscow where I was given the award of outstanding student, outstanding foreign student. Um, by the Ministry of Culture. But again, because I got injured, I I was prevented from dancing in that award ceremony. But I was able to dance um, a solo in the graduation performance as a seventh-class student. Uh, that was in June of uh, 1982. Yeah, 84, June of 1984. And for that two minute solo, I got a four minute ovation. I just kept on, you know, um, I d- get, kept on coming back to bow. And then, and so I think that was when the Russian school realized that I had the potential of um, becoming a ballerina. So in my second year in the school, which I admit was a lot easier than my first year because I I was already more or less fluent in the Russian language I had made a lot of friends I had adjusted uh to the climate and to the regime you know of uh, being uh, a foreign student in in the Russian ballet academy I I was given the role of Masha in the Nutcracker and it was the first time that they they actually had to look for an Asian looking little Masha to por- portray my younger version in the ballet, um, to because you know all the little Mashas were like blonde hair and suddenly so there's this dark haired uh, ba- ballerina coming out as big Masha, um, and then it was it, it was a very big thing for the Russian press. Uh, I was. I was interviewed in Novosti in the the press, press agency they they sent a delegation to a press delegation to cover the debut in uh, in in St Petersburg uh because it was the first time a foreign student was given that big a role in the Russian Ballet Academy and a foreign student that had not even been trained in the Russian style for very long. I was there on a two-year scholarship. And I was up against these Russian girls that have been training in the school for eight years. Uh So, yeah, I guess I was a, a really, I was a big deal. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I was just going um, to ask about uh the reception when you were when you were over there because you mentioned earlier the standing ovation but you also talked about how this was this was the 90s and i think even the 80s as you as you mentioned and russia was very closed, and to have a an asian break into that scene and sort of snag such well, a not just role, asian, but a Filipina. Yes, you know, when yes. I would
1: say, when I would answer the question, where are you from? i said, I'm from the Philippines. Yeah. They're like, where is that? Yes. I didn't realize there was a ballet in the Philippines. You know, um, uh, I would get uh, young, young Russians asking me if we live in trees or if we live in, we live in caves uh, that, uh, it was, or, or sometimes it was even, do you, do you eat people there? I, I don't know if it was, that was like serious questions. Um, but yes, it, it did happen that uh, uh, I would get um, reactions like that. And of course, when they would ask me so many questions about my life in the Philippines, because again, Russia was very, very closed at that time.
0: And I know it's a competitive world, the world of ballet, and, and you're in Russia, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's, there's a sense of competitiveness there. And th- nowadays, the conversation about, around racism has really opened up, really. Did you ever experience incidents like that? That, that, well, not just offended you, but probably you took to heart or made you feel bad?
1: Oh, well, for sure. Um, I lost the role of the second act of Giselle in my graduation ceremony because, uh, at that time, the artistic director of the, the Russian Ballet Academy, Konstantin Sergeyev, said in the, ju- during the casting committee, you know, when all the teachers were congregating to give the, the roles to their students, um, uh, Konstantin Sergeyev said, "Oh, we can't have a Giselle uh, with you know chinky eyes." Um, so the role of Giselle went to uh, a seventh class uh, student of Natalia Dudinskaya, and alternating with a graduating student, um, Jana Yupova. But I was given the role of Harley Kinad, which is a padida. De and of Columbine in Harlequinade and the uh, Key Tree in Don Quixote, which was more of my type, you know. Giselle was meant for the top, like, graduates of that, of that year. And I shared the same grade with Jana Yupova, who was the top graduate in, for that year. Um, and so everybody was saying, "Well, then it should go to Lisa as well, right?" Because you know they were they were casting, and uh, that's when Konstantin Sergeyev said, "Oh, we can't have a, you know an Asian looking Giselle." Um, wh- which you know at that point it really didn't bother me because I was I was very happy with the roles of uh, Kitri in Don Quixote and. Uh, uh, Harlequinade in my graduation performance, which I danced, and I got again very long and you know uh, enthusiastic ovations for. And um, that was the time when I I experienced you know coming out of you know uh, the Russians throwing flowers um, when I would bow, and they would like throw flowers uh, and um stand in the stage uh uh entrance door to wait for me to to like um leave the theater and you know ask for my autograph and you know the the little girls would uh, the younger students would like peek into my rehearsals and you know ask to have photos taken with me and it was just um a, an amazing i guess part of my uh my graduation that made me feel that I was on the right track for a professional career. And then when the artistic director of the Kirov Ballet invited me to continue dancing with the company for the next two seasons, I was just flabbergasted. I was floored. I was flabbergasted at, the, at that kind of an opportunity. And that was where I, you know, danced the role of Kitri in the full-length Don Quixote for the first time, the role of Giselle for the first time in uh, uh, in the, as a member of the Kirov Ballet. So over all those four years in Russia really changed my life.
0: I have to ask also, what was the response... To all that you did in Russia, here in the Philippines, did people understand like the magnitude of what you were able to achieve over there?
1: Yeah, well, well, you know, I think at first um, people didn't really believe it was happening. Uh, as I said, I wasn't really a child prodigy, nor was I like an exceptional ballerina when I left uh, for the scholarship in Russia. Uh, so. Uh, I guess a lot of them really didn't think that I was, I was accomplishing all of that uh, until I did my homecoming concert and until I was offered a principal dancer position in the Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet in the UK. And then I couldn't get the job because of my my Philippine passport uh so the the board the board of directors it was again it was this really strange encounter with the artistic director of the Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet because i spoke english uh the company manager at the kirov asked me to take care of him for a day um so i i you know i toured him around the theater i invited him to watch my rehearsals and he watched some other rehearsals, uh, and you know, at one point we were seated in the cafeteria having a snack, and I helped him, you know, buy his food and all of that. And and he was like, "You speak really good English for a Russian." And I'm like, "Well, I'm not Russian, actually." <laughs> um, and then and so he learned of my story that I was from the Philippines, and and. He was like, "Wait, well, wait, so if you're, Phili- if you're from the Philippines, then I can hire you. So <laughs> he actually hired me um, to uh, become part of his company in the UK, in the Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet. Um, so I left Russia for the UK. That was in 1986. But then uh, that was when I could not get a work visa. Um, the home office would not give me a work visa. So I I came home. And I think it was like default, like coming home and doing my homecoming concert here and being offered the position of CCP Artist-in-Residence. I was the very first CCP Artist-in-Residence. It was a program designed to have uh, Filipino artists who have like, made it abroad or based abroad stay in the philippines for a longer period of time not just you know in and out for just one performance but you know to to like stay in the philippines be an artist in residence of the cultural center of the philippines and uh and that's what i did for 2 years and i think that it was destiny really for me to bring back uh all my ballet training and experience to the Philippines, be an international guest artist. So based in the Philippines, I would travel from the Philippines to, say, dance with the Royal New Zealand Ballet, dance with Singapore Dance Theater, dance in Tokyo, dance, you know, guest in, in Russia, guest in Cuba. Um, so I was getting the best of both worlds. I was dancing in at home And dancing abroad. And I was, for seven years, I was, for the first two years of my career, I was CCP Dance uh, Artist in Residence. I was dancing with both Ballet Philippines and Philippine Ballet Theater. And then for the next seven years, I was Principal Dancer of Philippine Ballet Theater. And then after that, I decided to put up my own company, Ballet Manila. And I've been at the helm of Ballet Manila ever since, and ballet Manila has is going is supposed to go into its twenty seventh season now, but because we lost two years because of the pandemic, um, we're still into i think our twenty fifth season at this point.
0: I know that some people would frown at looking at opportunities that didn't push through and and dwelling in them. But does your mind ever wander in that direction where you think about what would my life have been like if, you know, I had gone on to the UK or how different would it have been? Do you wonder about that?
1: Well, sometimes, uh, especially when um, things were not going well with me in my former ballet company when I was with Philippine Ballet Theatre, I felt that maybe I should have gone the more traditional route of uh, going abroad, staying abroad, and dancing once in a while in the Philippines with, you know, homecoming concerts. So, yeah. So, but at the same time, I I think that had I gone that usual route, I would not have achieved as much in the long term. I maybe I would have like danced a a fuller repertoire of especially more contemporary works, balancing works, and I may maybe would have worked with different other choreographers. Um But at the same time, I felt that I just really wanted to be a classical ballerina and dance the classics more than just once and develop that side of me, really the classical ballerina side. I wasn't really that inclined to um, dance in the more contemporary or modern ballet. uh, And at the same time, I would not have met my husband. I would not have had my my children you know i don't think i would have um uh had my company ballet manila uh, the way it is now and my school at this point the, the lisa Makuha school of ballet so i think that coming home and do and having most of my career and career highlights happen here at home and touring all over the philippines um bringing ballet to the people uh dancing in in basketball courts and cockfight cock uh, arenas and um, school gyms and uh, making my mission of bringing ballet to the people and making that art form popular with the masses. That, that really was, uh, for me, the, the legacy. And that legacy continues with now my work, now that I'm retired from performing my work as a teacher, mentor choreographer with uh,
0: Ballet Manila. And you've become as you mentioned such a such an advocate for it. I mean, but of course you're here in the Thank Philippines. You. But of course you're here in the Philippines, but and it's not Russia, it's not the UK, it's not France or the rest of Europe and I'm sure there's a difference between dancing like on stages in Europe and in basketball courts and, and cockfighting arenas. And, and I'm sure it, it's difficult to carry out your advocacy like that. Can, can you tell us about the differences that you've, that you've noticed, which I'm sure are very stark?
1: <laughs> well, you know, of course, I, I don't think many European or American ballerinas um, would... Experience, say, dancing on top of soft drink cases that were nailed together, you know, um, and (laughs) in a in a school gym in Zamboanga, uh, or being like dancing in the Black Swan Padded uh, in Calibo, Aklan, and then suddenly it's you know the 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 loud noise of the music makes all the bats from uh, inside the the school gym fly out you know at the same time you're doing the black swan padidu uh uh things like that you know dancing say in in mindanao and then uh uh, a chicken crosses the stage or a cat crosses the stage or or going backstage and and there are um uh, cats sitting on your tutus <laughs> <laughs> for your, you know, your quick change, uh, or frogs for that matter, frogs in the dressing room. Um, but again, it's it's just it's that that's part of the mission of bringing ballet to uh, the people. Uh, and of course, it was hard. Like I, I especially. I think it was hard when the floor of the stage would be cement. That, for me, was the hardest. You know, I would start to get shin splints and um, feel a lot of pain and discomfort, uh, trying to, like still give the highest standards of performance when, say, the floor was hard or the lighting was bad or the sound system would conk out, or there'd be a power failure in the middle of your variation, and then you had to wait 20 minutes for the power to come back up, and then you had to continue from where you left off. Uh, You know, things like that. But it was like, a, again, a learning experience and character development. (laughs) Um, So I think, in fact, um, having done that, now, when I look at, say, my dancers dancing um, in, say, a beautiful theater like Aliyo Theater, I, I would always tell them, you know, you guys have it easy.
0: <laughs> in a country like the Philippines, um, as you mentioned, it's, 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 it, it's hard to bring ballet to the masses. But how do you explain the need to pursue dance and the arts when there are people who are worrying here about everyday things like you bring it of course to the provinces and to maybe the urban poor areas and they're worrying about how they will get their next meal so how do you explain to them that this beautiful thing such as ballet or the arts they exist and they should exist how do you explain that to them
1: um, well, I let the performance, uh, speak for itself. So I think there's nothing as moving as a really, uh, great ballet performance. Uh, why? Because, um, uh, the thing about dance is you don't really need to know a language. It's like a universal language that everybody understands. Um, and I think that uh, I always cite the example of of Jessa Balote. Jessa was a ten year old um, basurera in uh, Tondo. She would like be a scavenger for her next meal um, She got a ballet scholarship in my uh, project Ballet Futures, and now she um, is a professional ballerina and has danced abroad. Um, has uh, accomplished so much and is is now a professional dancer. Uh, um, I guess she's the breadwinner of her family. She was able to buy a a house for her family, being a professional dancer. So I think that's like like for me. The, the evidence enough that um, ballet has no boundaries really uh, if it's an art form and if you are good at it it's good art and good art is universal and it will it's a, it's classical it will last forever
0: I asked earlier how you explained the need to pursue the arts in ballet to people who are in a Position where they are maybe not as privileged to think of such things every day. But in general, to, to, for you, why do we need art and beauty in our lives?
1: Hmm. Why do we need art? Uh, that's something that's really subjective, actually. Uh, because, again, a, a beautiful piece of artwork... Uh, for one person, could be com- very, very ugly for another. Okay, a very moving performance by a dancer uh, could be could not be that impressive to another. It, again, it's very subjective. It really depends on the audience and the, the the styles that you like and your you know personal preferences. But I think we need art. In our lives, because it is, uh, a, uh, it entertains, it educates, it enriches, and it moves. And we need to be moved. Uh, we need our emotions to be, um, tapped and, uh, uh brought out. You know, we need to feel happiness. Or we need to feel sadness or we need to feel the inspiration or the motivation. And I think art brings the humanity uh, of our souls uh, out of ourselves. And it um, makes us want to uh, express ourselves and share that with others. And we, we need that. In our lives, because if, if not, then what will our lives be? You you wake up in the morning, and what are you gonna do? Um, what are you going to experience? The same routine uh, of working, and then you know, again, it for me, art brings out the the beauty and humanity of our um, ourselves.
0: How about passion? Because at the core of an artist really is this unrelenting passion. What's the importance of living our lives with passion, whether or not you're an artist or a dancer?
1: Well, first of all, they did. uh, I mean, it is a common expression that find, find a job that you love to do and you won't have to work a single day in your life. Right. So, if you find a job that you're passionate about, if you find that, if you have a dream that you are very passionate about, then um, you feel that every amount of time and effort and skill that you invest in achieving that dream, it's not work. It is you know something that you are doing because you are passionate about it, and you want it to happen, and you enjoy doing it. And I feel the same way about uh, dancing. But there does come a point when you have to also think about whether what you are passionate about is working. Right? Uh, You could be passionate. I mean, I've always wanted to be able to sing. (laughs) And um, and be a, a theater actress, a musical, you know, musical theater actress like my sister is, but um, singing and I don't really mix. So you know, I may be passionate about it. I may love singing in the shower, but I don't think the audience will love my singing. So there, there, you know, there comes to a point when you have to be realistic also about what you're passionate about. Uh, so. I feel that passion gives us, uh, dreams. It gives us direction. Um, but being, uh, practical and being also, um, uh, accepting and realistic is also an important part of being, uh, of, of trying to achieve your dreams and
0: being passionate about, about something. What are the greatest lessons from your life or from your career that you've learned that you would like to impart to other women, especially this Women's Month, because it's Women's Month? I think
1: we first have to accept that we really cannot have it all. Okay, we cannot have the the uh, the kids and the the family and the career and the you know er, you know everything. Uh, we can't really have it all without having to compromise and sacrifice uh, a lot of it, yeah? So being a woman in this day and age, it's easier than when, I mean, I think we live in a completely different time. Uh, and we live in this global environment that makes everything like easier and definitely faster but at the same time I think we tend to always just scratch the surface of what we're trying to do because we are so used to the speed and the you know the instantaneous results that you want to have, and yet, to have meaningful results, you need to invest a lot more um, time, energy, and uh, uh, and sacrifice a lot more uh, in order to uh, achieve these kinds of results—the meaningful, deep, long-term results. Uh, so, I think that. First and foremost is you need to invest in yourself. You have to invest in your training, in your, in the development of your strengths, the, the knowing yourself, knowing your weaknesses, knowing where you have to improve on, uh, and invest in what you know and the skills that you have in order to achieve um, what you want to achieve. After you have invested in yourself, that's when you need to find the best environment for you to grow and work and accomplish things. So as a dancer, you need to probably find first the best school or the best teacher and mentor to bring out the best in your dancing. And then you need to find the best company or the be- best dance environment for you, the best stages, the best roles, the best, again, the best coaches to bring out. You know, it's, it's a constant learning experience. Um, and then once you have, you are in that best environment, and you have the best kind of training and coaching, uh, you have to do the work. You have to make the sacrifices. You have to feel the sweat trickling down your brow. You have to feel the uncomfortable positions. You have to feel the blisters and the bleeding toes. Um, you have to feel the aches and pains and even the injuries and getting back into uh dance form after a long vacation or being sick, uh, um, you have to to make the sacrifices necessary uh, for achieving uh, the results that you want. Um, And then after you've done that, then you, I guess, are knowledgeable enough and experienced enough and whole enough as yourself To be able to now share that self with others. Whether it's sharing yourself with a husband, um, sharing yourself with your children, sharing yourself with your students, sharing yourself with your colleagues. Uh, So again, one step at a time. And it starts with being the best Whatever you want to achieve for yourself, being the best mom, being the best woman, being the best, I don't know, dancer, teacher, uh, being the best version of yourself. And then you share that best version with others.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us in this episode. It, its It's been a beautiful discussion. Thank you. But before we let you go... Thank you so much, Elsa. Before we let you go... Okay, sure. we just like to ask you, personally for you, like on a daily basis, or even if you don't think about it too much, what are the words that you yourself live by?
1: Oh, okay. Well, I used to live by no pain, no gain. (laughs) So... Um uh, especially because I was you know a dancer most of my life, and really, no pain, no gain if you're not uncomfortable, if you're not like uh, sweating it out in the studio um uh, you're not gonna progress uh, but at the same time, i think uh the my faith has been enriched so much, so um I, also, you know, nothing is impossible. But I have to add that nothing, nothing is, poss- is impossible um, with God there, um, and of course, the best uh, teachers and mentors that you that you have. Um, and uh, really, I think my philosophy. In life, which I also try, which I also al- always give us advice. If it's, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I don't think we need to, um, force anything to happen in our lives. Again, if it's meant to be, it will happen in, in the time that it's, it's best to happen and i think always because i'm very very positive i always been i've always been a very positive person i think always the best is always yet to come and we always have to think about that that the best is always yet to come and the best part of our lives is still up ahead because if we don't think that way then you you know you're just going to look Continue to always live in the past and look back and, and think, oh, you know, I'm done. <laughs> but but now, even though I'm retired, I, I don't dance anymore, um, I think the best uh, is always still yet to come. And I think the best, uh, you know, best times in my life with, say, discovering and being able to mentor the next generations of dancers, being able to create. Ballets uh, for them being able to uh, watch my students perform and soar. uh, I think that's still, again,
0: the best is still yet to come. Lisa, thank you so much for being on What Glass Ceiling.